You know, in the days in which we're living, where things are moving closer and closer and closer to Christ's coming, uh, and of course his snatching away of his beloved bride, praise the Lord, um, it becomes all the more important for us to look to the scripture to get a sense of what's going on around us. And uh, because so much attention in the last um, uh, couple of years, year for sure in the last year during this whole COVID thing, um, there's been so much attention drawn to the World Economic Forum, to uh, the whole idea of of, um, of pandemic and, and globally, how are we dealing with this? And the result of that has been a continually coalescing uh, together of the nations of the world in unity, trying to solve this global crisis and everything. And so our attention has been naturally on those uh, uh, on those vehicles through which these things are happening. You know, we've been watching again the World Economic Forum. What uh, happens at Davos? What happens when the, the nations uh, are um, working together on uh, dealing with the pandemic? All this kind of stuff. And so we've tended to be looking a lot over the global picture of what's going on, because after all, the scriptures talk about the conditions of the world uh, uh, during uh, Daniel's 70th week under a global leader, uh, Antichrist, and as the world continues to move closer and closer into a uh, a mindset of globalism, where at which at one point will crescendo in in uh, uh, in the world rallying together behind this leader Antichrist and his false prophet, as we read about in Revelation thirteen seventeen, other places throughout the Scripture, Daniel and otherwise. Um, our eyes are on these things. This this sort of seventieth week perspective. This is coming, and and how are th- events. Uh, pieces on the chessboard moving together, uh, ultimately to the point of checkmate where we finally get there. However, um, headlines like uh, that have been coming up over the last 24 hours about the activity in Israel, uh, where Hamas and Islamic Jihad, primarily Islamic Jihad, Hamas is dragging its feet a little bit and sort of not full-throatedly endorsing the attacks of Islamic Jihad into Israel, firing from Gaza uh, over 400 missiles, I think, at this point, rockets, uh, missiles maybe overstating it, but rockets uh, into southern Israel. Uh, Israelis, a couple of Israelis have been killed. Israel has, in response, as they have always said they would do, uh, they have responded and attacked in kind and launched, I think, 100 and, um, uh, oh gosh, how many airstrikes they struck, but 130 rockets into uh, Gaza and that kind of thing. And so, uh, it's been it's it's once again reminding us that the events in the Middle East are heating up and continually doing so. Um, this there has been a little bit of a cease of some of these things during COVID and everything, but once again we're reminded over the last few months and now in the last 24 hours in particular, we find ourselves being reminded again that the events in the Middle East have not gone away, the conflicts that are there have not gone away, and so therefore it brings to our uh, our focus once again the. Uh, question, what about Ezekiel 38 and 39? That scenario has not gone away or anything like that. Um, but other events, global in nature, have tended to capture our attention. Uh, and so I thought today it might be good in a prophecy brief to go ahead and sort of rekindle our, uh, our, our, uh, our attention and sort of refocus just a little bit on the idea of what uh, Ezekiel speaks about in the prophecy that bears his name, in particular chapters 38 and 39. Now, we have spoken about this at greater length in the past, and I encourage you to look at some of the previous studies about the unfolding end times events and those kinds of things. But the reason that we come back and we look at these things 
uh, is really twofold. One, not everybody necessarily has watched any of the previous videos on this, and so it's good just to keep it at the forefront so we don't lose sight of it. And that is the second reason, is so that we don't lose sight of it. So that in the in the in the larger picture of the global events that are leading us toward Daniel's seventieth week, we don't want to forget about the fact that the scriptures talk about another conflict, or I guess that's partly what we're going to talk about today, is where does Ezekiel 38 and 39 fit in? Uh, Does it fit in uh, prior to the last seven-year period uh, uh, under Antichrist and that? Um, Or does it fit in to a different place that is uh, also commonly held uh, into Revelation 20's description of that final conflict where Satan stirs up Um, uh, a multitude of people from the four corners of the earth to come against Christ in Jerusalem and against the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, is, is, Is that what's in view? So I thought we would take a little time to talk about it, but I will also encourage you to go ahead and, um, and look at the links. Uh, I'll share at least a link, if not a few links on, uh, uh, the conflict and the escalation that has taken place now in the Middle East. Um, again, uh, you know, uh, about 400 or so rockets ultimately, um, just looking at the headline here that I'll share the link to with some videos on it and that. But significantly, one of the reasons why, um, as Bible-believing Christians, we pay attention to these events is because the nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are at play in some regard, uh, some much more prominently than others in, in these conflicts that we're seeing. Talk briefly about, briefly about that at the end. Um, but in, in, in case you're not aware uh, of, of, uh, of what's been going on in the Middle East, I'd like to make those elements available to you. So let's talk about Ezekiel 38 and 39 a little bit. Um, in summary, Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, comes uh, uh, through the, uh, the word of the Lord given to Ezekiel. And chapters 38 and 39 are not in isolation. Uh, chapter 37 should be uh, brought into the discussion as well as the chapters that follow, uh, 40, uh, 40 on. Chapter 37 uh, helps us uh, to see the regathering of the people of Israel. Now, even chapter 37 of Ezekiel and I really want to commend you to read chapter 37, 38, 39, become familiar with the chapters even surrounding those, uh, especially in, uh, especially, but also in concert with that, uh, chapters 40 through the end of the book, um, because those chapters seem to describe the millennial kingdom, uh, the temple in the millennial kingdom and that. Some dispute about that, but it seems to be that's, that's what's in view. And so, but chapter 37 speaks of a couple of things. It speaks starting of the idea of God regathering his people to Israel, the, the reviving of the dry bones, putting uh, uh, muscle and sinew and breathing his spirit into them. Uh, and the nation is reborn. That passage, in my view, speaks to the regathering of Israel that's taken place from 1948 on to the current day. And that section of Ezekiel 37 from verses 1 to about verse 14 or so uh, seem to be describing that. From verse 15 on, there is some question about whether that is still just speaking about this initial gathering, or if it, like many passages in Scripture, uh, sort of launches from the immediate context into a more far-reaching context. In this case, the millennial era, and so and the kingdom in that. And so, um, if that's the case, then that lends some question to, well, what about Ezekiel 38 and 39? If chapter 37 of Ezekiel starts to introduce the millennial kingdom, doesn't Ezekiel 38 and 39 then better fit 
into that final conflict between Satan and the peoples that he gathers up in rebellion against Christ and the saints in Jerusalem is spoken of in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. Um, well, that is a good question, and it's worth exploring a little bit. Uh, and so let's talk about uh, a little bit of the difference, I think, between those two views. Uh, and as always, um, much, much more could be delved into, but my intention in talking about these things uh, I have a position on this that I'll always make known, but uh, I just think it's important to be transparent about that. But I do like to be fair to different positions as well, because there is merit uh, oftentimes to other perspectives on things than the one I take. You know, I'd be pretty arrogant to think that, you know, um, that, that great minds have not been on both sides of this. And, and so to not acknowledge that, I think, would be foolish. But um, and at least it's honest to do that, I think. So so that being said, um, there are a couple of views uh, in regard to where, again, Ezekiel 38 and 39 fit in regard to Daniel's 70th week in the millennium. That, uh, that is the crescendo or the next event at the end of the uh, 70th week. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, those that would hold the view that it, and, and let's actually turn to Revelation 20 so we can see the passage we're talking about. I'll read this because it's much shorter than all of Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, and really 37, 38, and 39, uh, based on our discussion here today. But um, I will encourage you to read those passages, but let me read this one in, in Revelation chapter 20, where it speaks about, uh, this is now we're going to pick up right after the millennial kingdom. So in other words, uh, the beginning of chapter 20 speaks about the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ with the saints from Jerusalem in Israel. Uh, where Christ rules and reigns with a rod of iron. Uh, we spent time in our study in the, the letter to the church at Thyatira last Sunday morning about how uh, certainly the saints there were promised, but by extension we can see that saints uh, in the time of the millennial kingdom will rule and reign along with Christ and sort of um, aid in the responsibilities and in what that means and in, in shepherding with a rod of iron and that kind of thing. But right at the end of that, we pick it up here in verse 7. Um, it says again in verse uh, 6 how uh, the um, uh, uh, how we're ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And in verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth uh, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But... Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. They were put there in Revelation 19, prior to the millennial kingdom. And uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so there is some, there are some elements within this description in Revelation 20 that find parallel in, in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, however, do those parallels require this to be the same event? Or are they two different events? Uh, in other words, is Ezekiel 38 and 39 a standalone series of events that takes place at a particular point in time, or is it seen as an expansion of what we just read in Revelation chapter 20? In other words, these few verses that speak about Satan leading these uh, this multitude of people at the end of the millennium to come and rebel against Christ and the saints, is Ezekiel 38 and 39 
giving a more expansive description of that scene than is given in Revelation 20. Uh, and, it, and therefore, uh, flipping the coin over, is what is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, simply spoken of in much shorter, uh, uh, a much shorter description here in Revelation 20. But are they the same event or are they different events? Uh, and so the, the, the argument that they are the same event uh, hinges on a few particular points. Uh, one being that Gog and Magog are mentioned here. That's the most obvious similarity between the two passages. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is a leader, Gog, over a land, Magog. Um, geographically, the area of Russia now, uh, and uh, therefore speaking of its leader in the time frame that is being described, ultimately gathering together a conglomeration of nations uh, that are described by name in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, in particular, 38, we see the, the list there and everything. But um, And they're named by their ancient names, not by their current day names, because... After all, Ezekiel was written 2,500 years ago, so Russia would not be called Russia, it'd be called Magog. Um, you know, Sheba and Dedan would not be called Saudi Arabia, but they are Saudi Arabia by today's, um, geo, you know, naming. And so, but when we talk about these, um, we talk about Gog and Magog, the leader of this land, um, mentioned prominently in both places. He is mentioned, uh, he and the nation of Magog there uh, are named as the leaders of this horde in, Revel in uh, Ezekiel 38, where these nations come against Israel and seek to plunder her. Um, there again are specific nations locally, geographically surrounding uh, and in the, in the vicinity of Israel that ultimately culminate, uh, I, I should say, uh, come against uh, Israel in that, led by Gog and Magog. In Revelation 20, as we just read, Gog and Magog are mentioned prominently, but no real description is given of their role. Um, and so it may be that, um, that the names Gog, the leader, and Magog, the land, are used metaphorically to speak of that whole horde of nations, like, they, like uh, it is used in Ezekiel 38 and 39 at a couple of points, where God is speaking to Gog, but he is speaking to the judgments that will come upon those nations that are with uh, Magog as well. And so, um, I'll, another thing I'll try to do is I'll try to sort of uh, put a, a list of those nations and who they uh, most typically are seen to represent today uh, in the notes so that you can see those as well, maybe print them out so you have them. But um, anyway, so um, they're mentioned prominently in, Ezekiel, in uh, Revelation 20, much more descriptively in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But the, the argument is that because they are named in both places, Gog and Magog, therefore that's a link to sort of help us understand that this events, these events uh, described by Ezekiel are actually uh, what's in view in Revelation 20 as John records it. Um, so, uh, and then other elements would be the, the, the way that God brings judgment in Revelation 20. Fire comes from heaven and things like this. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, we see that um, in similar fashion, as these nations come against Israel, God sends fire from heaven and destroys these armies. Uh, the King James uh, includes, uh, uh, the, the English King James translation includes the idea of sixth thing, um, the the invading armies, in other words, leaving a sixth of that invading army. In other words, God destroys five sixths of it in this uh, in his defense of Israel. And the reason that he does this 
is so that both the nations who are coming against Israel, but also his own people, Israel, will know that he is the Lord. Okay, that's an incredibly important thing, and it's something that appears a number of times throughout the passage in Ezekiel, where God is doing this so that his people and the surrounding nations attacking her will know that he is the Lord. In other words, it appears from the text that God is going to make it obvious that he is intervening in that time. Now, I find that fascinating. I think, you know, uh, often when we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 and we see fire coming from heaven, sometimes we're prone to uh, sort of bring a modern understanding to what that passage may mean. In other words, it may very well be that missiles are fired down, raining from the skies and that kind of a thing, and God is using that to ultimately defend his people. Well, that's not an unreasonable understanding of these things, because after all, Ezekiel, like Zechariah, like John in Revelation, are no doubt struggling to describe the things they're seeing in terms that, um, you know, he would dis- they're seeing things that maybe words haven't been invented for yet. Uh, when it talks about bows and arrows, well, from that, that could, if I can borrow from Chuck Missler on that, that could speak of launchers and missiles. But how does John know how to say that? And even if he could, how would his readers understand that? That wouldn't be contemporary to their time. And so he uses terminology that describes something like what he is seeing. But it may not be, you know, in, in modern terms, we may now have descriptions for those things. So it may be that that's in view. But I've always kind of held the idea that because of what God's point is in, uh, in defending Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the fact that he wants his people and he wants the nations to know that he is the Lord. In 1948, um, accounts, uh, whether it's David Ben-Gurion or others who are uh, fighting to defend Israel at the various points in her history, certainly not the least of which in the founding of the nation again in 1948, um, they would sort of give assent to the fact that there must have been divine intervention because it was too miraculous how they won and got their land back or in the Six-Day War, how they gained land and things like this. Oftentimes the accounts would include some sense of acknowledging that, well, there must be God intervening because we should not have been able to have this kind of victory. So for, for God's people to acknowledge him, they kind of do periodically when they see victory and that kind of thing. But in Ezekiel 30 and 39, it seems like this is a much more pronounced feature of these events. Um, and even, even beyond Israel acknowledging the Lord, God wants the nations around to see that he is the Lord. Now that's an affront to all of these nations that are coming against Israel. Um, but I wonder if it's not another um, important element that is going to become um, a tool later in, uh, in God's unfolding plans. Um, without skipping around too much, let me just sort of interject what I mean by that. Um, in in uh, first Thess- second Thessalonians chapter two, we see a description of Antichrist. Uh, In Revelation 13, we see a description of Antichrist and the false prophet in addition to him. And one of the main uh, elements of the the Antichrist is not that he's secular per se, but he's actually quite religious. He demands to be worshipped above all that is called God uh, in in, in 2 Thessalonians 2. In Revelation 13, an idol is built uh, in his image. That is, there is a command for the world to bow down and worship, and even to take a mark of allegiance to him. 
And so there is, um, there is a clearly religious uh, element to what's going on there. Well, part of the reason that the world may rally around him is because he exalts himself above all that is called God. Reading through the book of Revelation, uh, uh, in chapter 13, where an assassination attempt is made on his life, and he either literally dies and comes back, or at least it appears very strongly that he died uh, and, and comes back. And the world is enamored. Who is like the beast and who can stand against him and all this? Well, that may be a direct affront to the fact that God has made his own name known in this battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm kind of giving away my hand here already, where I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 fits. Um, but uh, um, although it could lend itself to either view, I suppose, that what I was just describing. But, but that being said, um, God wants the world to know that he's the one inter- interacting here in this. Um, and so when Gog and Magog uh, ultimately lead these hordes against Israel, ultimately the message that God sends is a clear one so they will understand that he's the Lord. Um, so when we look at the description of the kind of, the way that God is bringing judgment upon the nations, whether it's the nations in view in chapter 20 of Revelation or the nations in view in Ezekiel 38 or whether they're the same, um, the, the similarity there seems to imply that they, they may be connected, they may be the same event. That would be the argument of those that hold the idea that they are the same event, uh, ultimately we see in Revelation 20. I, on the other hand, take a different perspective. Uh, I do, uh, just to get to it before we get too much longer, I take the view that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a separate event, uh, similar in some fashion as we've been describing to what's described in Revelation 20, but I don't think Ezekiel 38 and 39 are, are what's going on in Revelation 20. I think they're separate, and I think they precipitate, they come before, and even lend, uh, uh, and even sort of contribute to the opening of Daniel's 70th week. I think the two events, Ezekiel 30 and 39 and Daniel's 70th week, are connected, but I think that Ezekiel's prophecy uh, is fulfilled prior to the 70th week. Um, and there's a number of reasons why I think that. I'll share a few of those here. Um, first off, um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 seems to be a local conflict. Um, there, is, there is mention of, again, specific nations in proximity to Israel that are led by a particular leader to come against Israel. But Ezekiel 38, especially in verse 13, mentions uh, we've not only seen the nations that are involved, but in verse 13 of Ezekiel 38, we see a couple of nations or a few nations in view that are on the sidelines. They're not coming against Israel. Uh, namely, Sheba and Dedan and the, the merchants, uh, 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 Tarshish, I should say, and her young lions. Sheba and Dedan, as we said earlier, represent the area that is now Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is currently, uh, while not having full diplomatic relations with Israel, behind the scenes are basically establishing uh, those relations. And on top of that, uh, Saudi Arabia is sort of at odds with Iran and some of the and Islamic Jihad and some of these things too. And so there's more of a kinship between Saudi Arabia and Israel, at least enough for Saudi Arabia not to get involved when these nations come against Israel. Um, also, uh, Tarshish and her young lions. There is some discussion about whether this is, has in view maybe Spain as Tarshish or Britain. The, the predominant view tends to be Britain. And her young lions, therefore, would represent those nations that were born of her. Uh, in particular, nations like the United States, Australia, places like that. 
who also in the conflict, as described, are on the sidelines, sort of rebuking the nations coming against Israel, but not really participating in her defense, also not attacking her. There's, again, we're on the sidelines. Um, and so that's a significant element, because in Revelation 20, if you remember where read the passage, after the thousand years, Satan is loosed. He's been chained during the millennial kingdom, uh, and he is loosed, ultimately, to go and deceive the nations and bring them together from the four corners of the earth. Now, Gog and Magog are mentioned there, but this is why sometimes we see that as maybe being metaphorical of, the, of just the overall uh, whole of those nations, maybe under her leadership again, uh, uh, under the guidance of the, of the dragon, of, the, of Satan, um, but or maybe they are prominent. Um, uh, the same nation and, and, and the leader at that time um, are able to be prodded by Satan to lead the hordes once again. But the difference is, in Ezekiel 38, local nations are named. It's not a global conflict in view. However, in uh, Revelation 20, nations from the four corners of the earth are brought together under uh, Satan's deception to come against uh, not Israel and the Jews in Israel, like in Ezekiel 38, but against the saints in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, now, for those uh, who like to make a big thing out of the fact that the Jews are never called saints or those kinds of discussions in that, um, you know, there's something that could be said about all that, I suppose. But the saints in Jerusalem certainly speaks of God's called apart ones, those who are set apart to him. And it is against those in Jerusalem, in that place, that ultimately are being, uh, are ultimately being um, uh, attacked by Satan and those hordes that he's brought together. Uh, so I don't know what that is. Uh, something's ringing somewhere, but anyway, okay, sorry about that. But uh, anyway, so that's one of the reasons why I think that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is different than Revelation 20. Uh, Ezekiel 39 also describes a seven-year cleanup period uh, after the conflict that takes place in Ezekiel 38 uh, into 39. There's this period of time uh, seven years where they are burning the weapons that were used during this conflict, uh, using them for fuel, it seems. Uh, also, uh, in concert with that, there's a seven-month period of time where there are people that are hired to go through the land and bury the bodies that were uh, that were killed during that conflict. Um, the 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 way the 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 process is described, um, some have seen as potentially indicating that maybe there was a nuclear conflict in in view, and so certain. People are set up to go and mark these bodies where they are so that people don't touch them and that kind of thing. Uh, it, may, it may speak in, uh, uh, because it's taking place in Israel, it may actually just speak of clean and unclean for ceremonial purposes, but it could also speak of something beyond that as well. But the idea that there is this seven-year period of time where they're burning the weapons and that kind of thing, I could see because it's seven years, some may try to connect it with the idea of the 70th week of Daniel being seven years and that kind of thing. Although I don't think it's necessary, and I don't even think it's necessarily implied, because there's really not mention about this period of time in Ezekiel being that which Daniel spoke about, that 70th week appointed to his people. Um, it would have to be strongly um, sort of read into the text, because there doesn't really seem to be anything in the text that implies that those two periods of time are linked in Ezekiel 30 and 39. Um, so... In short, uh, to kind of start bringing this in for a landing, my view, again, is that Ezekiel 38 and 39 precipitates and comes before Daniel's 70th week. Um, and I think that it causes, uh, it has a lot to do with why Daniel's 70th week opens. Uh, let me elaborate on that just for a moment. 
um, uh, because there's there seems to be hints. Again, I can't be dogmatic about it, but there seem to be hints that this conflict in Ezekiel's prophecy um, may be nuclear in nature. There may be something beyond just typical warfare going on there. Again, maybe hearkening to the way that the burial of the the, the bodies that were killed, you know, is is described, and that could be. Um, again, can't be dogmatic about it, but it could be in view. Uh, but it's possible that this conflict in the Middle East with that many nations coming against Israel and the fact that God makes it clear that he is coming to Israel's defense and he puts the nations back in significant, devastating fashion. Um, an event like that could lend itself to helping the world coalesce against the world leader, the Antichrist we were describing, who will claim to be a god himself and demand to be worshipped and may very well lead the people of the world to want to feel like they can stand against uh, the god of heaven. Uh, Psalm 2 describes the idea of how he who sits in the heavens laughs when the nations seem to be coming against the Lord and his anointed. And so um, I could see where Ezekiel's events that he describes could easily lend themselves to the the world's feeling like they need to come together behind this leader. Not only that, but this leader also signs a covenant with Israel, which may have to do with uh, bringing peace in the region after this conflict. Uh, it would appear that this this um, this covenant would uh, also have uh, as one of its tenets the idea of rebuilding the temple uh, uh, during that period of time, which would not only be a great thing for Israel in Israel's mind, but also would probably have to mean that he has found a way to bring peace between these uh, intensely warring factions. So there, there's, it's not hard to imagine links between these things. Now, on top of that, too, if the rapture of the church takes place um, around the time of Ezekiel 38 and 39, whether before or even after, I, I tend to hold the very imminent view that it could be at any time. And I tend to think that it will happen prior uh, to uh, the unfolding of Ezekiel's prophecy. But even if it happens around that time, that would be another huge impetus for the world to want to rally together and ultimately coalesce into a global unity to prevent these kinds of things from ever happening again and to somehow stand against whatever this force is that has caused many millions of people, if not, and hopefully a billion or more people, to disappear suddenly. Um, you know, We'll eventually have another podcast talking about you know, that element of it as well uh, as we as we spend more time doing prophecy updates. Um, so um, a few other elements that, that you know, just kind of maybe round out the picture a little bit. Um, you know, why would the United States be on the sidelines uh, when it comes to standing with Israel and that kind of thing? Well, we used to ask that question, uh, but we don't really anymore. Um, our current administration is wanting to once again uh, re-enter the... Um, uh, the nuclear deal with uh, Iran, um, giving money to Iran and that kind of thing, like like our current president did when he was vice president under Obama. Um, it's not difficult at all to see how we might just sort of, you know, um, as sort of a, a token gesture, you know, say, hey, you shouldn't be attacking Israel, but not really to come to her aid and not really to get in the way of any of that, but just to sort of stay on the side and watch. Um, that's not a, a far... Uh, it's not a big stretch to understand that. 
That same gap in leadership in regard to friendship and partnership with Israel is, um, is also an open door for Putin currently, uh, the, uh, the leader of Russia, to take on the role that he wants in the Middle East. And he has long wanted to be the key player in the Middle Eastern, um, you know, the Middle Eastern region. As a matter of fact, he's, he's basically built ties with all of the nations that are described in Ezekiel 38, through arms deals and selling weaponry and 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 uh, sending people to both um, teach and to equip people uh, in those regions in that region to use the weapons, the S four hundred missile systems and even the five hundreds now too. Um, so all of these elements coming together um, make it easy to see how this conflict not only has not gone away but how it can very quickly ramp right back up to a place of global prominence and attention. Uh, and I, so I think we want to keep our eyes on uh, the Middle East right now. And, and again, without taking our eyes off of the global larger picture that we see unfolding, ultimately culminating in what we see in Daniel's 70th week, the Antichrist and all of that. But we don't want to take our eyes off of Ezekiel 30 and 39 and the Middle Eastern conflict. This is an important part of God's unfolding prophetic plan. It hasn't gone away. And so we don't want to sort of have a blind eye and sort of all of a sudden see it happen. And, and oh, that's right. That was happening. As, as, as people who are biblically astute, seeking to understand what God has to say regarding prophecy, it only behooves us to continue to spend time looking at these things. So that said, read the news. Go to the Jerusalem Post. Go to the Times of Israel. Go to Haaretz. Go to the various, uh, you know, understand what I'm saying, but subscribe to Al Jazeera and find out the, the two perspectives and stuff like that. You can learn a lot of information uh, from this. Um, I, was, I was just popped into my head when I was thinking about uh, uh, Russia and Israel. Um, you know, Netanyahu and Putin have a relationship. It's tenuous. It's not neither, you know, it's kind of like two mafia bosses in a sense, kind of looking at each other and keeping each other uh, in view. What's the old expression? You know, keep your friends close to keep your enemies closer, right? So that's kind of the relationship they have. Um, and, and so watch that. You know, uh, eventually it will be Russia leading these nations up against Israel. So watch what's going on there to see how that might unfold. Again, I try not to be super dogmatic in how some of the geopolitical things look at the moment because things change constantly. And frankly, uh, most of us, myself included, don't have firsthand knowledge of what goes on in meetings behind closed doors. I'm not in the negotiating room when these guys are talking about stuff. And so we have to read what's made available to us. We have to watch and put the pieces together and connect the dots, but we do so with a measure of humility, knowing that things change quickly uh, in, in this scenario. And so we don't want to camp too hard on one particular uh, news story or something and say, that's the thing, because it might change tomorrow. But in the larger picture, we can see pieces moving and we can make sense of what's going on in the larger picture. Uh, and that is something we should definitely keep an eye on. Again, when it comes to things like the, the pandemic and uh, passports in order to prove that you're inoculated so you can travel freely or go to stores or those kinds of things. Well, those things have echoes of the mark of the beast in that. They're not currently the mark of the beast because the beast is not on the scene yet. He's not demanding that these marks be taken yet. But it's not hard to see how they could become that or these very things could be the thing that is used ultimately by the Antichrist uh, in some capacity. And so as we watch these things unfold, we don't get crazy and frenetic. We take a good, cool, hard look at what's going on, and we recognize that God's purposes and plans are unfolding. He said they would. Uh, when we read and study prophecy, 
we can make clear connections between some of the things that we see, and we ought to recognize those things. But the biggest reason we do is because it should kindle a hope within us to know that his coming for us is soon, that we're going to see him face to face soon. One day we will be finished here. The work on earth will be done and we will go and be with the Lord. We'll rule and reign in the millennium with him. We will be with him for all eternity after those events. The day's coming and it's coming soon. That should get us pretty jazzed. That should get us pretty excited. It should get us on our faces crying out, God, yes, please bring these things about. We don't want to see destruction and all that kind of stuff. But we do want to see his kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as is, as it is in heaven. And that certainly is something we should desire deeply. So that said, let me pray. And, uh, and um, maybe today, right? Father, we thank you for the promises that we find in prophecy. We thank you for the hope that is kindled through the knowledge that your purposes are unfolding before our eyes. And it just means that we're getting closer and closer to the day when Jesus will come for his bride and will go to be with him. We thank you that ultimately, in the final unfolding of these things, that the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will happen before our eyes. We'll see that prayer answered. We'll see Jesus ruling and reigning. And as we rule and reign alongside of him and have front row seats to what's going on in that scenario, we'll be able to rejoice and see the world as you intend it to be. Uh, and then, Father, ultimately, when these things are wrapped up, when judgment is final, when everything is finished, We'll be able to spend eternity in a new heavens and a new earth with you. How we look forward to being with you. Thank you for spelling out so many of the things that are happening and coming in our day, uh, that we see happening in our day. Help us to anchor ourselves in your word as we seek to understand them. Help us not to interpret your word by the events, but help us to use your word to help us understand the events. Um, and help us not to be misled. Help us not to be um, uh, misguided. Help us just to simply, straightforwardly, read your word and let it help us understand what we find ourselves in the midst of. Thank you, Father. We thank you again. One day we'll see you soon and maybe even today. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we bless you. Father, we glorify you. Holy Spirit, we need you. And we pray that you would fill us to overflowing, anoint us, give us understanding and wisdom as we live out these days leading up to Jesus' return. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, if you have thoughts, comments, questions, anything like that, and on this topic, generally there are a lot, and so love to hear that and interact about it. We're going to continue to do prophecy updates. I'm, I'm kind of feeling led to maybe start incorporating more and more of them, actually, as we um, are seeing just, again, continually things coalescing, moving us closer. I love to make sure we spend time, um, uh, you know, going through the word verse by verse a lot. I like to spend a lot of time in that regard. Because uh, prophecy is a part of God's word, and it's important that we not only know the word of God in terms of just specific things, we want to know all of the word of God as best as we can, because the, the, the reward of that is that we get to know the God of the word better. And ultimately, it's him we're going to see. One day, all the events we're reading about, we're studying about, we're learning about, we're talking about are going to be finished and done. And so it becomes really, really important for us to remember, like to borrow a Yogi Berraism, to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus himself. And so we want to know him and we want to know him well. We don't want him to be a stranger when we see him face to face, uh, if I can be clumsy and put it that way. We want to know him as well as we can here on earth, uh, even as we will one day know him fully in heaven. 
Um, that's a grand adventure in itself. Prophecy is just a spoke on the wheel in terms of knowing Christ and his unfolding plans and purposes. Uh, and so, um, so I like, I, I love spending time going through the word verse by verse. We're not setting that aside. But I do think that I will probably on a more frequent basis look at things that are going on in the world and not just sort of keep myself up to date on stuff, but I'll try and share more of those things. Uh, again, with the dual purpose of not only informing, but also giving a sense of how to understand these things so you can do your own study and your own research. I'm a big fan of the old adage, give a man a fish eats for a day, teach a man a fish eats for a lifetime. And so as we all embrace the study of the Word of God, as we all kind of come at that study with the humility and, and the open-mindedness of how we interpret and that kind of thing, not getting too, um, um, you know, standing on those things that are absolutely clear, but the things that are somewhat iffy, we, we want to approach those with the right mindset and humility. But we do want to learn about them. We do want to consider. We do want to pour ourselves into this study. So... Um, so that being said, hopefully today was helpful, and uh, and uh, feel free to, again, leave comments and questions and stuff on our YouTube page here, our YouTube channel. If you want to go to my website, it's uh, called parsonspad.com. These same videos are available there, and you can also watch them, comment on them. You can email me there. My email address here is brian at parsonspad.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to the audio version because, you know, truth be told, there's not a whole lot to watch in these videos. It's just my mug, you know, holding up a Bible periodically and that kind of thing. Maybe you like the pictures behind me or something. But you can listen to the audio and you're not really missing anything. So if uh, if, if that's your uh, persuasion, then go there and you can link to the, um, uh, click on a link and subscribe through your favorite uh, podcasting uh, channel. Uh, resource. And so also you can go to our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com. You can watch our Sunday morning services. I am trying to work it out where I don't have two different channels that uh, whoop, that uh, that we post videos through. I'm trying to get them all in one uh, sort of stream that you can just go to. You don't have to go to... Um, uh, anyway, but you can learn about our church and all that at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And you can also watch these videos now on Odyssey, and I will continue to find other outlets that we'll be posting to as well. Uh, so that being said, thanks for watching. God bless you. God uh, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, and, and, uh, and give you peace forever until we meet again uh, and forever, right? But anyway, so thanks for watching. We will catch up with you next time, and God bless you.